Welcome to Pebble in the Pond, a podcast that hopes to create a ripple of change for mental health. My name is Sam Stewart and I'm the CEO of the Australian and New Zealand Mental Health Association. Each year I have the pleasure of attending events to meet and connect with the most fascinating and accomplished people in mental health. Listen in as I go one-on-one with the people changing the face of mental health in Australia and New Zealand, from lived experience speakers through to researchers, academics and influential industry leaders. Our Pebble in the Pond podcast episodes may contain themes or topics of discussion that may be triggering to some listeners. If you feel you need assistance with your mental health at any time, please contact Lifeline on 13 11 14 or visit the Get Help page for additional resources at anzmh.asn.au. Hello listeners and thanks for tuning in to another episode. Women in rural Australia experience workplace sexual harassment at alarming rates, with a study from this week's podcast guest, Dr. Sky Saunders, revealing that 73% of rural women had experienced sexual harassment at work. Sky is an associate professor in law at the University of New England, an employment discrimination solicitor, and is the vice president of the YWCA Canberra. Sky pioneered the first research in Australia on sexual harassment in the rural workplace, contained in her book, Whispers from the Bush, the Workplace Sexual Harassment of Australia of Australian Rural Women. In 2017, the Victorian Women's Trust produced a short documentary film called Grace Under Fire, which is based on Sky's research on workplace sexual harassment in rural Australia. In her work, Sky strives to ignite the inherent empathy and perception in both men and women as a central part of her mission to disrupt sex discrimination in the workplace. Sky was a delegate at the United Nations Commission on the Status of Women in New York with the YWCA Australia and was also awarded the Chancellor's Distinguished Young Alumni Award at the University of Canberra. Listen in this week as I chat with Sky about her pioneering research into gender, gender dynamics and sexual harassment in rural workplaces and her framework for change. Hello listeners and welcome to another episode of our podcast. Today I have uh, the... I guess the privilege of introducing Dr. Sky Saunders to to this podcast and talking to her about her pioneering research into gender dynamics in rural contexts and also sexual harassment in rural workplaces. Sky, welcome to the call. Thanks so much, Sam, for having me. No worries. Uh, before we get into um, all this, the research and stuff that you've been up to recently, if you just give us, I mean, you grew up, a bit of a background history, you grew up in central New South Wales, is that right? Do you just want to give us a bit of a... Uh, a recap on how you got to where you are today? Yeah, sure. Um, All right. So I did. I grew up in central western New South Wales, um, primarily around Orange, which is, um, you know, the the heartbeat of the central west in some ways. Great spot. Um, um, Yeah, it's a beautiful place, actually. And let me see, where can I um, begin? I'll begin um, at around uh, year 10, um, after which I decided to take... um, some time out, actually. I, I left school after year 10 initially, um, which is a little-known fact about me, and I worked as a medical receptionist in Orange after I finished year 10. Um, at some point um, during the apprenticeship that I did as a medical receptionist or a traineeship, um, I decided that it was time for me to reconsider school. So I went back to school. I, I donned my school uniform all over again <laughs> after having had a, a year out of, um, out of school. And did year 11 and 12 at the Orange Christian School. Mm-hmm. 
And I then um, made the transition to Canberra um, for uni, having been accepted into a Bachelor of Law at the University of Canberra. So I made that transition and studied my LLB or my Bachelor of Law there. Um, at some stage throughout my degree, um, I was really fortunate to pick up some work um, as a paralegal in a criminal law firm in Canberra. And so um, I guess that was the point at which my, um, I guess, um, soiree into the, the legal network really began um, towards the end of my first year, beginning of second year of law. And that gave rise to all sorts of different opportunities. Um, most significantly, um, a, a job at the end of my law degree as an employment and discrimination lawyer, um, which I really loved um, in a medium tier firm here in Canberra. And I practiced law um, with a special interest in sexual harassment cases um, at the point of having finished my graduate diploma of legal practice at the ANU. And when I started to practice sexual harassment law, something I think um, flicked a switch within me in the context of that passion. And it wasn't until a little bit later when I had my first child, relatively young, I was 23, um, that when I was at home with her and um, I guess, you know, embracing everything that motherhood sort of represents, um, you know, it, when you're at home with a newborn, I, I started to really think about, um, you know, trying to strike the balance between being a, a mum at home and also sort of having some connection um, to the world and in the world. And it was at that point that I began to think about um, a PhD. Um, and when I did that, I started to wonder and ponder um, what it was that I would write about that would fill a gap in the literature, but which would also um, effectively tap into the things that I knew. So, you know, they always say that you write what you know and that that's where really true, authentic writing sort of begins. And I knew what it was like to sort of grow up in the bush and I knew what it was like to work in the bush in different contexts. Um, I knew what it was like to experience geographical isolation in some of those um, different workplace sort of experiences that I'd had. And obviously, I'd sort of had that practice background in sexual harassment law. So putting the pieces together, I started to wonder if there was um, a piece of work that I could contribute, um, which was around um, the experience of sexual harassment in geographically isolated um, spaces. And ultimately, that's what I did in the context of Whispers from the Bush. And I should say that um, at that point, having completed the PhD, um, I then transitioned into academia. Um, and so I'm now really delighted. I had 12 years at the ANU Law School, um, culminating um, in my work as an associate professor there. And more recently, I'm delighted to have commenced at the University of New England Law School, which is where I work now. And I'm just so passionate about that work. I love it. Wow, what a great runway into where you are now, and uh, and the story is is very unique. But I guess if you just, what made you want to get into law? When if you go back to ah. leaving school, like what, was it something that's been in your family? Was it a passion mm. that you had? How did you come about to just being interested in getting into law in the first place? Well, I think um, to be honest, I think my father, um, who um, has worked in the Department of Agriculture for most of his working life. Um, 
sort of writing ministerials um, and, you know, sort of bringing home lots of interesting conversation around the drafting of legislation and so forth. That was that was really formative and powerful for me. Um, and interestingly, um, of course, you know, Department of Agriculture um, is where he worked, as I said. So there was also that element of the rural in the work that he did as well. So, you know, um, I think that um, to look really very pragmatically at some of those early seeds, I think that Dad had a lot to to sort of um, do to whet my appetite in that context. Um, my mother was an English history teacher um, and um, I think because she grew up in um, um, just outside of Tamworth in a little place called Baraba, um, I think she had really also, you know, um, introduced me to that, that real passion for rurality and for rural people in particular and yeah. she just had such a heart for, for rural people. So in the context of I guess my interest in um, law, putting those pieces of the puzzle together probably after my time as a medical receptionist um, was interesting because I had thought that I was actually going back to school to study medicine. Mm. Um, but when I came back to school, I think my English history teacher, mother, um, probably, you know, um, shaped the way that I chose units and subjects um, and just that natural instinct probably um, my sister's an author. You know, there, there's always been that, yeah. that English sort of um, thread and, of course, there's that um, element of law that, um, you know, flows, flows, flows through English and history. So probably there, Sam. And and so the book that you wrote, uh, it's your first book, uh, Whispers from the Bush, uh, is basically the, the findings from the research that you did into gender dynamics uh, in the rural context. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. So um, the the book Whispers from the Bush um, tells the story or, or creates the narrative um, of 107 interviews um, that I conducted all around the country with people about their experiences in the rural workplace. And in particular, I was looking to understand what those daily experiences might feature in the context of um, behaviour, um, some of which may be unwelcome and unwanted sexualised behaviour. Um, and I was looking to also understand from an employer's perspective um, to what extent the duty of care that employers owe to their employees um, was A, understood, and B, uh, I guess enacted. Mm. Um, so I was looking to do two things. One, to situate the experience of women in particular, um, noting that sexual harassment is what we call a gendered harm, meaning that it tends to affect or impact women's lives primarily. Um, and secondly, to understand through the employer lens um, to what extent and employers you, sort of you know, un understood their duty. Yes. Uh, and, uh, and it's great to get those both perspectives as well. But, I mean, you literally got in your car and you drove around uh, rural yeah. Australia, didn't you? Oh, well, I actually did. So it was a really interesting process. I decided to put out um, a virtual cooey call, I guess you'd call it, through social media, just to, um, I guess, understand um, the extent to which people um, might be um, open and, and willing to participate in an interview with a perfect stranger from a completely different city, mind you, you know, coming in from Canberra um, to talk about their experiences. and. I was absolutely blown away um, by the amazing um, 
offer, you know, the, the generosity of people um, offering to actually not only um, meet with me, but quite frequently to sort of host me in their lounge room um, for a conversation or to, you know, meet me at their favourite local pub or to, yeah. you know, um, make some scones or have a cold beer ready or, you know, it, it was just incredible. What an amazing experience to have, you know, to meet with 107 strangers around the country um, and to be welcomed into a conversation in that way. That was really quite, um, you know, a, a, that was one of my life highlights to date to be honest, to, to have been privileged enough to have um, met with people in that way. So once I did that, um, once I put out that QE call, um, effectively what I did next was to pin out the locations of people on my big literal notice board, a big map of Australia, and to find um, synergies in the context of different sort of routes that I could travel to enable um, the most meetings. That, or the most number of meetings. So, you know, for example, I might have um, chosen a route out near Kalgoorlie um, and there was, in fact, a, a route between... I, I flew into Kalgoorlie and then drove, um, I think, down to Bunbury, but along the way managed to sort of incorporate quite a large number of interviews with different people. Um, and similarly, you know, the same would apply out the back of Coolard, through to Dunedoo, Gunnedah, Tamworth, you know... Um, so different tracks would lead to different um, interviews and, um, yeah, just flying in and then grabbing a car and, you know, um, touring um, Australia in that way was really, really interesting and amazing. It would have been a great way just to see the country, but, I mean, what a what a fabulous uh, initiative that you were setting out to achieve and that you did achieve. Tell us about some of the, the subconscious uh, discrimination that can go on in rural communities um, because I understand mm. that it, it's something that sometimes over time or through generational um, transitions, I guess, that we, we become a little bit numb to it sometimes. Is, is that what you would say? Yeah, it's, it's really complex. Um, so gender dynamics in the bush um, can be very complex indeed. So the relative isolation of women in those sort of traditionally male-dominated workplaces is just the beginning. And it can be really helpful, I think, Sam, to consider um, the, the complexity of gender dynamics in rural Australia by thinking about it through the lens of three different stakeholder groups. And those three groups would be women, men and employers in the context of the workplace or the rural workplace in particular. So if we think about it um, through the lens of blokes, you know, men on the ground, um, sexual harassment, for example, can be so normalised in some workplace culture over time that its impact can be completely underestimated. And by that, many rural workplaces um, do remain saturated in masculinity as a legacy of the colonial notion that the bush is no place for a woman, inverted commas. And there's a generational aspect at play because um, over time men tend to, to model behaviour um, on the norms performed by previous generations. And by that, we're sort of talking about, you know, fathers and grandfathers and uncles and neighbours and so on and so on. So all of that can also be compounded by those um, cultural expectations of what the top bush bloke should look like. Um, in all of his larrikinism and ruggedness. So there's a pressure on, on men um, yeah. through, through pop culture um, to actually, you know, um, 
I don't know, archetype, if, if you think about the archetype of Crocodile Dundee or the Memphis Snowy River or that um, group um, quest for a hard-earned thirst at the end of the day, you know, that cold beer type ad that we see so frequently even today on TV, um, always um, excluding women from that hard-earned thirst quest, notwithstanding the fact, of course, that we have so many women now working alongside of the men um, in many of those rural spaces. So there is, um, I think, through through the lens of um, men, um, that sort of normalisation um, over the generation gone before us um, of sexual harassment um, as being part of the, you know, the norm. Um, that that's an, that's a really significant issue. Mm. And then from women's perspective, um, if we think about the same thing, sexual harassment um, in some workplace cultures. Um, is so normalised over time that it does go underreported um, by women. So, in fact, we know that about a third of women report sexual harassment um, statistically when it happens. And by sexual harassment, we should be clear, we're talking about unwelcome and unwanted sexualised behaviours. We're not talking about flirting. We're not talking about, yep. you know, delicious interactions of love or like or lust. We're not talking about um, consensual anything. Yeah. We're talking about the stuff that's really grotty yeah. um, and it's been plainly um, um, received in a way that's, um, I guess, the keynote discomfort. Um, so, you know, where we've got sexual harassment happening that's uncomfortable um, and yet only a third of women are able to, able to report, um, that's when we start to really understand what it is when we say that sexual harassment, and this is a quote from an author who I love, her name's Laura Bates, and she talks about the fact that for women often sexual harassment can be like reams and reams of tiny pinpricks, mm. so normalised that to report each one would seem facetious. Yeah. And you know, um, it's just like that frog in the boiling pot when that happens because you, you start to, um, I guess, experience sexual harassment as part of the norm and the ability to separate, um, <laughs> you know, the standard of, of um, um, unacceptable from the standard of acceptable starts to become really blurry. Um, and, you know, that's where... Um, people start to suffer and mental health starts to suffer and daily interactions with other people start to suffer, self-confidence starts to suffer, all sorts of aspects sort of sneakily come into play there. So it's really unhealthy. Um, and then, of course, from the employer's perspective, sexual harassment over time has been so normal in some Australian workplaces that it does go unopposed. So even though um, there is a duty of care to provide a safe working environment for all employees in the workplace. Um, a lot of employers statistically um, still um, are not taking the steps that the law requires to actively ensure that there are policies in place, to actively ensure that there is training in place on the policies and not just once but regularly, you know, to actively ensure that there are confidential mechanisms um, so that people can talk about sexual harassment in a way that's safe, secure, um, appropriate, you know, to um, being in the workplace where you, where you should be looked after and where you should be feeling safe. 
So, you know, we've got three different stakeholder groups there and you can sort of see that in the context of that entrenched cultural dilemma that we've got around gender dynamics in, um, you know, some contexts, you can see how it, it really is complex and we've got to really yeah. deal with each of those different lenses separately. With the, uh, with the statistic of one-third of women... Um uh, only one third of women report the sexual harassment to their employer. Is that that they're willing to, or they feel like they're able to, or they're they're encouraged to? So, Sam, um, the issue is that it's risky to make a complaint um, about um, sexual harassment, and particularly so where there is uh, no policy to actively point to and say um, your behaviour has breached this policy. So, as one woman said to me. Um, in her workplace, where um, wherein she was finding that um, her breasts were being compared to cattle teats in the stockyards, um, there was no workplace policy that she could point to and indicate that um, you know the behaviour was out of step with the policy. So instead, um, she said that she had to make a choice um, whether to say that the comments had actually effectively hurt her feelings because in the absence of policy that she didn't perceive that there'd been a breach of rule even though at law there had been yeah. um but um or the the easier option i guess inverted commas um is to as many women have said um fit in or f off yeah. um which is you know a survival mechanism um in the context of job security in the context of um keeping uh, sort of, you know, I guess free from the label of troublemaker in the community. So tell us about some of the implications uh, from people that are experiencing this. You mentioned before that it affects their work and their self-confidence, but I mean, the way that it can affect their character. They are the, the victim and then they can be doubly victimised um, where, <laughs> where they make a complaint and the complaint isn't treated with the respect that's due in the yeah. workplace. So that this is, again, what we're talking about in the context of the risk involved at the moment. Um, still, um, at least the perceived risk by many women um, who are experiencing behaviour that makes them feel um, lesser or, you know, um, other in the context of their employment. Because that's what sexual harassment does. It really demeans your sense of value and your sense of self and your sense of worth your sense of competence, your sense of confidence, you know, all of these things, um, it really rattles because you're made to feel um, l like a lesser version um, of yourself. You're, you're made to feel as though you are a piece of meat. You are made to feel as though you, you, even in the context of your professional work or your engagement in the workplace, you're made to feel as though this is acceptable yeah. and it's not. Um, so when, when sexual harassment does affect um, people, it has the propensity to, to really create shock waves um, throughout different parts of their psychological world. Um, you can be driving along in your car after work and reflecting on things that have happened to you in the daytime earlier on and just feel um, like rubbish, yeah. absolute rubbish. And that can then sort of filter through into the home life and you know, all sorts of things. And so when we're talking about sexual harassment, we're not just talking about a behaviour that happens in the moment. We're talking about a behaviour that can impact people's lives um, for a long time thereafter. And it certainly sounds like a cultural uh, a cultural problem. But tell mm. me about what, what's the downside of speaking out, especially in rural communities? Well, absolutely, because you're risking um, your reputation. You're risking being deemed um, a troublemaker. You're risking 
your livelihood, um, effectively. You're risking your family's well-being, potentially, um, because we know that in, in the rural context, there tends to be that community gossip that um, does circulate um, quite ably. Um, you know, there are, there are an enormous number of inherent risks that come with um, the courage to speak about sexual harassment when it does happen. Um, and I guess the, the thing is that we need to start to flex um, the muscles within us, the, um, and I use the word muscles in the context of um, an analogy here, it's the, the muscle that enables us to feel able to give voice to our intrinsic values that we need to be developing our confidence in as um, reflected in the law. Because we have good law, um, the law says that we are entitled not to be sexually harassed in the workplace um, and the law says in fact that employers who who allow sexual harassment to happen anyway um, may be held to be vicariously liable um, i.e. maybe um, required to pay significant damages um, if they don't take reasonable steps to prevent it. So we know that the law is set up in a way that protects but what we need to do now is um, exercise that, that muscle within us that says um, yes, I'm strong and able and confident enough to align my standards of expectation in the workplace, my, my, the standard of behaviour that I'll expect and accept with what the law um, intrinsically provides for. Yeah. And so if we, if we then touch on what are, what are some of the solutions? Like how can we change this culture? How do we change in rural and remote communities? How do we... How do we make it okay? I mean, how do we educate uh, everybody mm -hmm. about this? What, what's, what do you think is, is the process that we need to adopt? Well, for a start, if we go back to the three stakeholder groups, so if we think about this through the lens of men, again, um, I think the focus here must be forward-looking. There's no point at the moment in sort of naming and shaming and blaming um, individuals for behaviour that may have happened in the past. If we're, if we're serious about adjusting and re-establishing normal workplace culture in this context, then we really need to be together looking forward. Um, and this is, as Mary Gentilis, who's a professor in the US, has said, she's, she actually has said, we need to be empowering the parts of us that want to do the right thing, even though we may or sometimes act unethically the fact is that we do sometimes also all act ethically. And so this is the um, trick. We need to be tapping into that part. So what that means is, um, I guess, engaging um, blokes at the level of the heads and hearts. So at the level of the head, um, of course, we need to be educating individuals and um, workplaces around what sexual harassment is and what it is not. You know, back to basics. So at the moment when I'm speaking with um, groups of men, there there is genuinely a lot of um, sort of, I guess, um, confusion as a result of a lot of the media um, sort of hype around sexual harassment over time too. And there's confusion around, you know, what is okay in the context of um, joking with female colleagues and where, where that line actually is. Um, now, the line... Um, Effectively, the line is where someone starts to um, feel uncomfortable, um, and, and that's the the trickiness for men. I think um, is knowing when that person is starting to feel uncomfortable. 
Um, so I'll just park that for a moment and say that we need to be clear and clean in our understanding mm. that sexual harassment is unwanted, unwelcome, sexualized behavior in the workplace. It might be the displaying of pornographic imagery on computer screens. It might be unwanted sexual touching on the bottom. It might be unwanted um, comments about breasts resembling cattle teats in the stockyards. Mm. It might be urinating on someone's boots before they go into the mines. It might be calling someone a C word um, in the presence of someone else. It could take on a whole different raft of possibilities. So the best trick is to really check in with ourselves um, around the mere possibility that this behaviour that I'm about to exhibit um, may or may not offend. And if the answer is it may, just don't do it. It's as simple as that. You know, we've yeah. got to re-educate ourselves around what that means in the workplace. Yeah. Um, we also need resonance with the heart in the context of, of blokes. And so taking the opportunities, I think, women taking opportunities to have spontaneous discussions with blokes around the issue of sexual harassment and how it does make us feel, you know, when it does happen and how it can um, be something that we take into, you know, the next week with us well and truly after the, the joke was told eight days ago or whatever. Um, when we have these conversations about the, the humiliation which can cut to the core, I think that those sort of natural awakenings of the heart can happen more ably and more easily. Um, but it also is the case that we just need to reposition sexual harassment as something that sits outside of the cheeky larrikinism of the bush because, you know, we cherish and so we should cherish our code of mateship and our codes of, uh, you know, larrikinism and joy yeah. um, as part of our Australian tradition and um, it's, it's just a wonderful, wonderful, rich part of that tradition. We just need to make sure that we don't accidentally trip ourselves up by incorporating into that same breath um, a celebration of anything that makes another person feel um, like an outsider because that's not part of that Australian mateship. It's quite, you know, or, or tradition, it's quite the opposite. Um, so we just need to be really careful and conscious about that too. Um, but um, taking responsibility as mates is another part of that too. So. I don't know, Sam, you know, where there's um, a, a bloke who might actually perceive that um, another bloke's behaviour in the workplace has the propensity to humiliate or offend another woman, you know, just a gentle tap on the shoulder and a gentle sort of, you know, pull to the side and um, in the same way that you would sort of gently take another mate's car keys if they've had enough um, to drink at the pub, you know, just yeah. taking responsibility for one another as mates is all a part of that too. Um, but it's, um, I think in that context, the spirit of cultural transformation through the, the lens of um, men um, is quite possible and quite powerful um, and yet to be sort of, I guess, fully realised in the context of um, the spirit of the bush, but certainly we're moving in that direction now, which is just really um, wonderful. And should I just also say that beyond the transformation of, um, you know, the understanding around sexual harassment. Those who do perpetrate sexual harassment, even after all of the education of the, the heads and the transformation of hearts and the understanding that we've spoken about, those who still perpetrate sexual harassment need to be exposed to the serious risk of being caught within a zero tolerance 
framework in the workplace because that's where it starts to get serious, where people know that what they are doing is in breach of the law, but they continue to do it anyway and they continue to hurt people anyway. Um, that's where the role of employers needs to really step up and step in. So there needs to be that serious focus on embracing the duty of care that employers have in the workplace. And that does mean a reframing of sexual harassment in the workplace as a real and serious risk to the business mm. and to the well-being of employees both. So it's going to hurt the, the back pocket of the employer if they allow sexual harassment to continue unchallenged because effectively that's where the vicarious liability um, part of the law, you know, cuts in and says, um, you know, all reasonable steps haven't been taken and so therefore the um, the onus is on the employer to have done something about this. Yeah. So I guess, you know, that's, um, that's the other part. And the other third part of the will, as I've spoken about, is, um, you know, empowering uh, women to feel more able to, I guess, speak, speak truth up. to the values that we hold dear, you know, because a lot of women would say to me things like, I know it sounds bad, but you do get used to it. It's just boys being boys or men being men. Mm. And it's that sort of narrative that we need to be actively um, readjusting as women too. Well, it certainly sounds like, uh, I mean, the research points to we need a lot of a lot more of a, a spotlight shined on this stuff and we need a lot of change still to go uh, in order to get to where uh, women um, no longer uh, or, or the workplace no longer tolerate sexual harassment discrimination in the rural and remote context do you um, as we the last question because I know we're short on time today what what's the future hold for you what what other things I know you've written your book and you're out there actively sharing the message what other things are you doing um, or in the future that um, mm-hmm. that are pushing you towards this goal of, of also trying to reduce uh, or eliminate discrimination, sexual harassment in rural and remote communities? Well, I'm actually really excited because one of the projects that I'm working on at the moment um, will actually take me back out into the Australian rural space, this time to hear primarily um, from the voices of men about this issue. So previously I spoke with women um, primarily having explained that sexual harassment is a gendered harm um, and I wanted to understand to what extent women um, are experiencing that unwelcomeness and the unwantedness and um, I also spoke to employers both male and female about their role but this time it's time to hear from men about you know particularly post Me Too how are people really feeling at the moment in the context of, um, you know, the, the Alice in Wonderland type, um, you know, I guess, um, world that, that the media has actually sort of, you know, created around the issue of sexual harassment? Because I feel as though, um, even for me as a, an academic in this space and as a lawyer in the discrimination um, law space, Opening the newspaper um, over a time there about a year ago was um, overwhelming, completely overwhelming. Sexual harassment absolutely everywhere I look. And so I, I feel as though if that was the experience that I had. Um, imagine, um, you know, to, to men on the ground, for example, you know, to what extent that was, um, you know, impact impactful, I suppose. Um, you know, that, that's what I really want to understand. And I really do also want to hear about um, any fears or any concerns or any um, bewilderments or any 
um, ideas um, primarily that um, that men have around the issue and the issue of cultural transformation um, and the issue of looking after mates um, and looking after women in the workplace. You know, um, all of those things, Sam, will come into play in that piece of work. Wow. Well, we're looking forward to that, and uh, and thanks very much for sharing the journey with us so far, Sky. If people want to get in touch with you, how can they get in touch with you um, if they want to hear more about this? Yeah, sure. So I'm at the University of New England, yep. and if you just Google Sky Saunders University of New England, um, it will come up with my profile and my connecting um, bits and pieces, email address and phone number, and all, all of those details are there. Perfect. Well, it's been uh, it's been great to talk to you, uh, and I know the the work that you're doing is definitely inspiring, but also really, really relevant and meaningful. So, keep on uh, doing what you're doing, and I'm looking forward to that next piece of work. Um, and no doubt you're looking forward to getting out there and and going on this uh, next journey with talking to all these uh, the males out in rural and remote areas. Exactly. Thanks so much, Sam. I really am. Thanks, Guy. Is there someone working in mental health who you'd like to be featured on the podcast? Are there more questions you want the answers to? Let us know what you want to hear. Get in touch with us by emailing any podcast suggestions to membership at anzmh.asn.au and be sure to stay up to date on our socials at ANZMHA on Facebook, Twitter and LinkedIn. Thank you very much for listening and we look forward to sharing our next conversation.